So in uh, 2005, this guy right here is coaching high school football. And um, he was coaching for Calvary. Yeah, go ahead and declare. If you're an Eagles fan, go ahead. That's cool. That's good. This is not... (laughs) Can you serve them communion again? They definitely need it, all right? That's awesome. Um, It's... It's pretty a pretty miraculous story. He's in 05, coaching high school football, uh, Doug Peterson for Calvary Baptist in Shreveport, Louisiana. So how does a guy go from there to exactly a month ago winning the largest, most prestigious football game in the world? How does he do that? Well, there's some ways that he did that. Yes, he's a Christian. Yes, he's a believer. Yes, he has a great work ethic. Kind of interesting about his backstory a little bit. He was a backup quarterback. That's him right there with the ball next to Brett Favre. And he was a backup quarterback for years to Dan Marino and to Brett Favre. Interesting part of the saga about the Eagles is they're probably the most spiritual team in the entire league. They've done several baptismal services at swimming pools on the road. These are, these are road trips. And this was one of six uh, baptisms at pools on the road. And I, I just wonder what the staff of these pools would think when they watch these giant monster men, you know, go into the pool and dunk each other. And I just think that is just really uh, a pretty cool story, isn't it? They've got some quarterbacks who are sold out to Jesus. Well, who's this? Carson Wentz. And Carson Wentz does videos, YouTubes, Bible studies. Uh, he is a a very outspoken, strong Christian believer, won most of the football games for him this year, and he got hurt about week 14, and then all of a sudden comes in Nick Foles, and everybody thinks, oh my gosh, season's over. And Nick Foles came in and did okay, but every game of the postseason, he kept getting stronger and stronger and stronger. So I'm actually in Mexico watching the Super Bowl, by the way. It's just kind of a funny sidebar story to this. And the entire ESPN guys are Mexicans, and they speak all Spanish. And my El Spanish, El Succo, okay? And when when they did that trick play, fourth down, you know, and a tight end reverse, it was a fake reverse, and the tight end throws a touchdown to Nick Foles in the end zone, I kid you not, after three and a half hours, the only only one word I ever understood for three and a half hours was, Excellente, excellente, and I knew that meant good. But anyway, um, how, how did he do this? H- how did Doug Peterson, the coach, beat a really good team? Brady threw for over 500 yards. Gronkowski had a phenomenal game. Belichick is always an expert. How does a Doug Peterson match up to a Bill Belichick in the biggest stage event of all times? There's a principle from this game that applies to every one of us in this room. There's a principle that was going through, I believe, Doug Peterson's mind. It's true in marriage. It's true in parenting. It's true in going to school. It's true in business. It's true in your faith. It's true in everything of life. Here's the principle. I believe that Jesus Christ is offering this principle to everybody in the room, and it just trickles down. It trickles down to your faith, your family, your work, your school, your friendships. It trickles down to everything else. And here's what these guys did. Doug Peterson knew 
that he couldn't score field goals. He had to score touchdowns. And a couple of really gutsy plays on fourth down and a long ways to go. And those fourth down plays were gutsy, and he just happened to, to get them, but, but he went all in. They had to play to win, and they had to go all in. It's a principle of life. If you've got your Harborside app, you want to follow along with us, fill in the blanks. You can just download it real quickly if you're new with us, and you can follow along. Yesterday, I was able to go to the University of Florida basketball game. I was at the UF, and they played the Kentucky Wildcats. And by the way, UF just whooped up on the Kentucky Wildcats. At one point, well, if you're a Wildcat fan, I'm not trying to, you know, but at one point, yeah, he's wearing the blue right there. Um, serve him communion too. But they, what, what happened, 20, 23 points at one, at one place in the game that UF was up. And then with about 10 or 12 minutes to go in the game, Mr. White, the coach, slowed the game down, and Kentucky comes back. He, he stopped playing to win. He calls a timeout. He redirects the team. They go up-tempo, and they go up again by, by multiple points. You stop playing to win in business, in love, in life, in parenting, in school. You stop playing to win. Think of the parable of the talents. There was a guy that had five, guy that had two, guy that had one. And Jesus was so upset in the parable with the guy that had won. Why? Because he didn't play to win. He played not to lose. And when you play not to lose, you won't win. And you won't win well. And you won't win often. And so what Jesus Christ in the scriptures is inviting all of us to do is he is inviting you to play to win. And you got one life. You've got one life to play to win. And everybody who plays not to lose eventually is greatly disappointed. And so today, I want to talk about playing to win and the invitation that Jesus Christ has for you. Now, if you're new to church and you don't understand much of this, you don't know if you want to go all in or not because you're not even sure what it's about. We're so glad you're here. You get to kind of be on the sidelines or in the bleachers today and and kind of watch all of this. Right after Christmas, the day after Christmas, several of us, some of those that were on stage here just a minute ago, we went to a home in California and we did a songwriting retreat. Now, I didn't write the first song, but I'm there with the team and I'm writing sermon ideas for this year and I'm checking in with them and we're working on services and they're writing songs and Danita and I are enjoying all this. And so uh, every morning, Early in the morning, we'd start off together as a team, and I would read this out loud. You can just imagine all of us in the kitchen. This is our kind of a retreat, some of our staff members, and they're cooking bacon and eggs and, and you know, toast is going on. And, and right during the middle of all that kind of pandemonium, I said, just listen up. Keep, you know, your eye on the bacon, but just listen up. I'm going to read this out loud. So here's what I would read every morning as we started our retreat together. Quit living as if the purpose of life is to arrive safely at death. Set God-sized goals. Pursue God-given passions. Go after a dream that is destined to fail without divine intervention. Stop pointing out problems. Become part of the solution. Nobody cares that you're the chief critic. Become part of the solution. Stop repeating the past. Start creating the future. Face your fears, 
fight for your dreams. Live like today is the first and last day of your life. Burn sinful bridges. Blaze new trails. Live for the applause of nail-scarred hands. Don't let what's wrong with you keep you from worshiping what's right with God. That'll preach, right? That'll just slap your mama, jump a pew kind of preaching right there. That'll just, let me read that one more time, all right? Don't let what's wrong with you keep you from worshiping what's right with God. And so your heavenly father today is going to encourage you and inspire you to live this life with the next life in mind. Lots of sermons are called, I call them right now sermons. This is not a right now sermon. Right now, become a Christian if you're not. Right now, repent. Right now, confess. Right now, forgive. Right now, deal with your bitterness. Right now, right now. This is not a right now. I just want to warn you, this is a strategy of life. This is how to live this life. And what the scriptures are going to do this morning is they're going to teach us that if you're smart and you're wise, smart and wise believers live this life with the next life in mind. Here's what Jesus says in the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. He says this, look, I am coming soon and my reward is with me. Now my reward, does God teach a system of rewards? He does. Are there rewards in the Bible? There are. Does it matter how I live my life today? It does. If I don't live my life well today, will I have as many rewards in heaven? You won't. Here's what Jesus says. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have believed. What's it say? According to what they think, to their wishful intentions. No, I will give according to what they have done. So here's two myths. Myth number one. And this is true, but the whole world teaches that you do good works to be saved or to gain eternal life. That's what every other religion teaches. Every other faith teaches you must jump through hoops, go over hurdles, you must do certain things in order to be saved. Christianity doesn't do that. This is not about getting saved today. Here's the truth. Christianity teaches that you are saved through a person, Jesus, and not your good works. You can't do enough good works to be saved. Billy Graham would be the first one in this room to admit that today. Everybody who's in faith knows I cannot do enough good deeds in order to get saved. I'm saved by the blood of Christ. I'm saved by what Christ did at Calvary. I'm saved by the salvific work of Jesus on a cross. Everybody in the room would probably believe that. That's true. Myth number two. Your good works don't matter to God. And I, I didn't really get this. And I remember as a young preacher thinking to myself, and again, I started preaching, I was a senior pastor at 28, which you shouldn't be a senior pastor until you're about 108. So I was 28 years old. And I kept, you know, for years and years and years going, I I keep preaching all these sermons on salvation, but most of the people in the room are saved. 10% in the room aren't saved. 10% probably need to hear this, but 90%, they keep hearing my same message week after week after week. Give your life to Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. Well, they've already done that. And some of you have been saved in this room for 50 years. 
How many of you have been saved more than 50 years in this room? Raise your hand. Yeah. Some of you have been saved 60 or 70 years in this room. And, and you know what's so cool about that? You are racking up eternal treasures for the life to come. And so I'm going to myself, gosh, does it matter how you really live your life here today for the future life? And here's what the answer is. Your good, your good works matter greatly to God. Here's what Ephesians says. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says this. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. In other words, you can't boast about your salvation. You didn't earn it. You couldn't get there. Christ gave it to you. So no one can really boast about their salvation. But look at the next verse. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to what? To do good works. Say that with me. To do good works. Say it with me. To do good works. You were created. Now that's not going to save you. Christ saves you. But you are created to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, God has a plan, God has a purpose, and God's given you skills, talents, and opportunities for you to expand his work in his kingdom. All right, does the motive matter? Does, if I'm doing all these good works so I can get eternal treasures, does the motive? Well, yeah, the motive matters. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That makes sense. Colossians says this, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Now look at that. You will receive what? An inheritance. It's not in this life. It's in the life to come. What you do today greatly matters for the life to come, not even for this life. It is the Lord Christ that you are serving. So then I came across this verse that I never really noticed before because I'm always reading the verse before it. And the verse before it in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 says, do not store up treasures. That's kind of as far as I got. And then I realized when I saw verse 20, part of verse 20, I realized that Jesus is an investor. And Jesus tells me to store up treasures. Have you noticed that before? I kind of get the first part of it, but I didn't get the second. Jesus said, I want you to store up treasures. Now, that's interesting. Jesus Christ wants you to store up treasures. Is that hard to swallow? I'm going to say it again a third time. Jesus Christ wants you to store up treasures. But here's what he says. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures. Where? On earth. Why? Because it doesn't last. Because moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. And it's not your future investment. But he tells you in verse 20, he tells you to store it up. Now, I think that's cool. God tells you to store up treasures in heaven. Because when you make an investment on earth for the future and for the kingdom of God, it's the only investment that goes with you forever and forever and forever. Jeff Laurie bought the Philadelphia Eagles for $195 million dollars in 1994. If he sold it today, it's worth $2.4 billion. I know nothing of Jeff Laurie's faith. But if he sold it today and made a couple of billion dollars, and he's not a Christian, he's not a believer, and he never uses that money for the king or for the kingdom of God, that investment's going to last him only while he's here on this earth. But if he and you and I use it for the kingdom of God, 
I'm not saying you can use his $2 billion. I'm saying you and I use our resources and our opportunities. It changes everything for your future. Look at what Jesus says. Jesus said, I got a parable. There was the ground of a certain rich man that yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself. That's usually the first mistake. He didn't ask God. He thought to himself. Did you catch that? What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Now, now I want you to hear me carefully on this. There's nothing with bigger barns, wrong with bigger barns. There's nothing wrong with more crops. There's nothing wrong with more seed. There's nothing wrong with more acreage. There's nothing wrong with growth. There's nothing wrong with upgrades. There's nothing wrong with more tractors. That's not the point of the story. The story is not that the guy had too much. The guy was smart, and he kept expanding and expanding and expanding. That's the good part of the story. I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns, and I'll build bigger barns, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, again, who's he talking to? He's talking to himself. He's not asking God what he should do. You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. Why was he a fool? Well, first of all, he's going to die. That very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And Jesus says this. Here's the, that was the wind-up. Here's the pitch. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not what? Rich toward God. God's not asking you not to have more crops. Probably none of us in the room are farmers, so I'm safe with this illustration. God's not asking you not to build bigger barns. God's not asking you not to have more seed and more acreage and more farm. He, that's not the point of the story. In fact, I think part of the time when you read the parable of the talents, he was so upset with the guy who had one talent who buried it in the ground because he didn't play to win. You're supposed to play to win. It's not how much you have. It's what you do with what you have that counts. This guy was not rich toward God. And Jesus called him a fool. He said, you fool. You're a fool. Because everything you have, your millions or billions, everything you have, it's like the game of Monopoly when it's all done at 11 o'clock at night. It all goes back in the box. He says, you fool. Who will get this? And so I I, I realized then that Jesus is the ultimate long-term investor. So I'm 26 years old. Danita and I are. She was 23. I'm 26 years old. We're kind of newly married. We've got a robust salary of about $22,000 a year back in the day. And I'm, I met with a financial planner. It was the first time I ever sat down with a financial planner. And the lady was about my age, and she kept calling me honey, which was cool, honey and sunny. And um, she said, um, honey, you need to think long term. And I said, well, what's long-term? She said, 30 years. She said, 30 years is is long-term. Now, hold on to that story. Now, go fast forward till I'm 40. At age 40, Danita and I are in Puerto Rico at a place called um, the El Conquistador. It's a walk-through-the-Bible conference, and it's a walk-through-the-Bible conference. I hear, we hear Dr. Bruce Wilkinson talk about eternal treasures, eternal rewards for three and a half days. For three and a half days, Dr. Bruce Wilkinson has page after page after page of Scripture and Scripture and Scripture and Scripture, how God wants to reward you. 
God has a plan for you. God, God talks about all these rewards he wants to give you and, and for three and a half days. And I start laughing inside at this conference, age 40, because I can see myself back in that room with that lady, wonderful lady. I'm 26 years old. And she's telling me I need to think long term. And long term for her was 30 years. I have an IRA or you know, whatever for 30 years. And I'm laughing hysterically. Jesus is going, 30 years? Are you kidding me? That's a sneeze. That's a blink. That's not even the pregame warm-up. That's not the appetizer. The seven. Jesus is going, I want you to think about 300 trillion years. I want you to think about a long-term investment. Now, I don't want anything from you this morning. I only want something for you. And what I want for you is that when we're in heaven someday and you've changed, this isn't a right now sermon, you've changed your strategy of living. You've changed your strategy of thinking. You've changed your strategy of giving and serving and loving. I want you to come up and kiss me right on the forehead. Thank you for teaching on this. I want nothing from you. I have something for you today. And this is for your eternity. Now, there's nothing wrong with enjoying this life. But the more you spend over here, the less you can invest over here. And there's nothing wrong with this because 1 Timothy tells us he's given us everything for our enjoyment. So there's nothing wrong, and I'm not going to put a list up, there's nothing wrong with your stuff and what you like. And there's nothing wrong with that. But there is something wrong with being foolish and investing as if you're going to live forever, as if you can take life easy, eat, drink, and I got plenty of crops and plenty of... It it just doesn't make sense. So I, I want something for you today. I want you to think as a long, long, long term investor because that's what Jesus is. And Jesus is giving you and me the opportunity to invest for the future. Well, Luke says this, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. So in other words, there's coming a day when he's going to reward you for all the things that you've done. Peter answered and said, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, in other words, the next kingdom, not on earth, at the renewal of all things, when I come again, remember what Revelation 22, 12 said, behold, I'm coming soon and my reward is with me. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters, now that was a big deal to them. That's not our culture. That's not our context. We would fill in other pieces in the blank. Who left children or wives or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much. He's saying every investment you make is a 10,000 return fold. Can anybody beat that in the market today? A 10,000% investment? Every investment you make for the kingdom of God has a 10,000% return. I'll take those odds. How about you? He says this, but many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. And again, there are a lot of people today that have a lot of stuff. But if they're not using their stuff for the king, Jesus would say, gosh, that's just, that's just short-term thinking. That's like, that's like thinking 30 years. Now, please hear me. 
I think you should save for retirement. This is not an anti-IRA message, okay? This is not an anti-Roth, you know, 40. I think you should. I think you should save money. But I think you should be really smart and invest for the kingdom of God. God will pay each person according to what? What they have done. Another passage in Romans. Romans chapter 14. You then, my, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister, or do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Let me explain this real, quick, real quickly. There are two different places of the final judgment. One is called the great white throne. One is called the judgment seat of Christ. You don't want to be at the great white throne. And if you're not a Christian in the room this morning, I want to encourage you with everything I have. I do want something for you, and I do want something from you. I want you to give your life to Christ because I don't want you to be at the great white throne. The great white throne is the judgment for people who've never received Christ. The great white throne judgment for people who've rejected Jesus. The great white throne judgment is for those people who've said, I don't care, I don't think so. They've turned up their noses at Christ. The judgment seat, however, is where all the believers will go. And it's to be rewarded. It's not to be feared. It's that time where he says to you, well done, good and faithful servant. The judgment seat of Christ is where you want to be. And that's where he will reward you for the... And he says what? We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You're not sitting in Jesus' presence. You are standing at attention. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body. He wants to reward you. First Timothy says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Again, don't miss that. God wants you to enjoy what you enjoy. He's a loving Father. And if you enjoy, and I'm not going to start listing things because I'll miss your list, or you'll think, well, gosh, I'm being, you know, whatever it is on your list, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, this morning, driving here to church, for those of you that have no allergies, you roll down the window and you just... Man, what a beautiful morning, right? Clearwater Beach, my goodness, we get to live here? Where there are, I get to preach where there are palm trees? Hallelujah, praise God. Do, do you see my point? And, and, and all these things he's given to you for your enjoyment, it's just the next verse that you really need to pay attention to. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be, willing, be, be generous and willing to share. Why? In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation. You today, it's your only opportunity to lay up treasure for your future. You have no other opportunity. When you get to heaven, it's too late. You cannot invest in heaven in heaven. You can only invest in heaven on this earth. He says this, in this way, They will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the what? The coming age, at the renewal of all things, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So this is a message not about salvation. It's really about compensation. God wants to reward you and motivate you on this earth and then reward you for all to eternity. And of all books... Malachi teaches us this. Malachi chapter 3.16 is one of the most interesting little verses, I think, in the Old Testament. And Malachi says, Then those who feared the Lord, they talked with each other, 
And the Lord listened and he heard. And a scroll of remembrance, don't miss that, a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and who honored his name. What's written in that scroll? Every one of your prayers. What's written in that scroll? Every dollar you've ever given. What's written in that scroll? Every young person you've ever tutored or mentored. What's written in that scroll? Every word of encouragement you've given to someone. What's written in the scroll? You're writing your holy history today. And it's the only day you will have on this earth to write your holy history. And every classroom that you teach, every person you forgive and encourage, we're doing an egg drop at the end of this month at Marina Park in downtown Safety Harbor. Some of you are going to serve and volunteer. That'll be written down. Everything that you and I do is written in a scroll of remembrance. And it's your inheritance. It's your investment that you're making. And so again, Jesus just reminds us the very last book, the very last chapter. What does he say? I'm, I'm coming soon. And and my reward, it, it, is, it is with me. So here's how this really works. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are in lockstep. The Father has work for you to do. And your work's not my work, and my work's not your work, and some of our work's together, but some of our work's not together. But the Father has work for you to do. And you're in a context, you're in a school, you're in a neighborhood, you're in a business, you're in a work environment, you're in a home. The Father has great work for us to do. The Son models for us how to get it done. The Father's got the idea. The Father's got the will. The Father's got the plan. But the Son models for us throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He models for us how to get it done. And then the Holy Spirit comes along and he motivates you. The Holy Spirit comes along and goes, hey, hey. How about this? And the Holy Spirit motivates you. And you know what blows my mind when you think about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit working together? The Father's got a plan for you. The Son shows you how to do it. And the Holy Spirit gives you the ability to pull it off and motivates you. And then you get rewarded for that which God has placed in your heart in the first place. That's an amazing Father. 